tell me where in the world is crime in San Diego. Welcome back to another episode of Where in the World is Crime in San Diego. We are your hosts. I am Adrian. And I am Angie. So, I hope you guys had a chance to listen to Justice for Arabella. Um, It was a very difficult case to research and to discuss with you guys last week. Um, It it touched my heart, um, you know, dealing with a minor and dealing with a kid that, you know, can not defend themselves and it, it was just so heartbreaking uh it brought me to tears just reading the article and then discussing it uh we did get a very little emotional uh, uh during our recording uh on that episode and uh you know please continue to look out for updates on that story and we read all the dms and we are with you guys where this case was really hard to listen to but it was also important to keep that conversation alive So thank you guys for bearing through that and continue to share her story. Keep her name alive in the media so that she can actually see some answers. I know that there was a lot of controversy, at least in the comment sections between, you know, her mom's reasonings for the lawsuit. And I feel like no matter how you try to spin it, you can always find a negative in somebody's actions. Just support for the reason of trying to save another kid. We're not anyone to judge someone's past or their decisions or their motives. But I genuinely think she's doing something good here. And if we can be a part of that change, why not? I totally agree. I I feel like, you know, um, there is more beneath the tip of the iceberg that we are not seeing because of this. And, you know, it's just a mom that's trying to get her kids back, I feel like. And, you know, if she's a fit parent, then okay, perfect. But, you know, we're not going to get to that point. Uh, We're not, you know, there's still so many things that, are being like just shut tight because this is still an ongoing investigation. So we're for sure going to keep this one in our back pockets to see future updates coming up this year. Before we jump in, as we've mentioned, we've been working on some ways to grow the podcast and some really cool new features to add. With that being said, any share, like, review, subscription, anywhere and everywhere you listen to our podcast, it helps us out so much more than you think. So please continue to like, share, follow, everything and anything you can do helps us out. It really supports us more than we can say. So thank you if you've already done it. And thank you for continuing to support us. Yeah. And thank you for, you know, just sharing the word of us. Uh, We both greatly appreciate it. We look over all of our DMs, uh, comments, like Angie said, emails. We love hearing the feedback. Um, I was so busy this week that Angie took it upon herself to research our uh, case this week. And so I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea what the title is even called. So Amor, take it away. Well, after last week's Broken Hearts, I thought we can use a little bit of a semi-happy ending. So this week's episode will be called Bittersweet. And our sources for this week are Times of San Diego, LaJoyaLight.com, 10news.com, cbs8.com, and San Diego Union Tribune. And our disclaimer for this week is murder. Ooh, okay. So we are actually going to travel back 44 years to the exact date 
March 21st, 1979. It was a regular weekday morning and Barbara Becker, who is a wife and a mother and 37 years old, two young boys getting them ready for school, the whole chaos that every mom knows, getting her kids ready. Last she was seen was 8.30 in the morning. Her husband goes off to work, the kids go to school, and like any sane mom, she planned a little self-care day and made an appointment at the nail salon for 10 a.m. So she already had her day where she's like, okay, probably get some things out of the way, go get her nails done, and then wait for the kids to get home from school later on. Okay, nothing out of the ordinary, like a little self-care. All right, Sounds like a great day to me. Yeah. And they lived in La Jolla, so they lived right off of Torrey Pines Road, which is near uh, UCSD for anybody that's familiar with San Diego or that isn't familiar, actually. It's a nice way to like familiarize yourself with that area. And they had been living there for about seven years. So it wasn't like they just moved in and they were not familiar. And La Jolla is a pretty affluent neighborhood. Like it's very safe. It's very expensive. So everybody lives there's pretty wealthy or doing okay. Better off than uh, it's like upper middle class. So she never made it to her nail appointment, but that's not exactly like red flags. I mean, you can always like get distracted at Macy's or, you know, get caught up cleaning and you just forgot that you had an appointment. But around 1 p.m., her boys get home from school. And instead of finding like mom in the kitchen making lunch, they find mom in the living room covered in blood. Oh, wow. And these boys are seven and nine years old. So they're very young and very impressionable. Obviously, they freak out. They run to the neighbors, yell for help. And luckily, they didn't like touch anything. Like as soon as they saw it, they got out of there because I can't imagine like as a kid, maybe you'd want to like go touch things or like try to see if she's okay. Like, I don't know. You never know how you're going to react. But I mean, I would probably think it's like a joke or something like that. But uh, obviously it wasn't. Okay. So police arrived and through the crime scene, they were able to notice that she had suffered numerous stab wounds, but they could also tell that she had put up a really good fight, which friends and family say was like very to character. Like she was a very strong woman. So they can tell that the scene is just terrible. And, you know, there's blood everywhere. It's just messy as can be. But through the mess, they're able to follow a trail that leads out of the house. And, of course, they separate each section and collect every little thing they can. And while they're running each piece of evidence, they find that there's blood in there that did not belong to Barbara and is believed to be the attackers. Possibly from when she was putting up the fight. Yes. Okay. Keep in mind, this is in the late 70s. So we're not no working with the same. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So obviously this wasn't a normal thing to happen in this neighborhood. And the case grew cold after a while. There wasn't much leads. There wasn't much to go off of. There was no witnesses. Really nothing you can do. There wasn't cameras around. Like everything we have now that seems so like, oh, check the cameras or, you know, check the street light. Like none of that was. No, it's like in actual place. real detective work. Like you actually go like use your brain. kind of Yeah. Thing. Cause I'm reading this I'm like, Oh, what about cameras or what about street lights or what about like a grocery store? And like, I'm like, Oh wait, we're in the eighties. Like this wasn't a thing. Okay. So I don't know if anybody else thinks the same way I do, but that's where I was at. So case goes on a couple more years. DNA gets introduced and they're like, okay, like it has to be in CODIS. Right. 
This was in early 2000s. They run the DNA through CODIS and no matches. Okay. I mean, you kind of just lose all hope at that point because you're 20 years in. You really thought you had an answer and you come up short. All right. But yeah, but like as time goes on, probably there's, there's got to be at least something else. Like you, you, you keep trying. Yes. But I mean, that hope kind of dwindles every failure. Yes. Because some cold cases really do just stay cold cases. In October of 2018, San Diego Police Department cold case unit decided, okay, we've tried everything we can within our resources. Nothing's working. So they referred it to the FBI investigative genealogical team. And we've heard of them before, but what they do is they collect samples of public sources of DNA. So like 23andMe, Ancestry, like those where you send in to get your family tree and they can kind of build off of those samples. Oh, okay. All right. This is in 2018. So you have to remember, it's going to take a while to like dwindle down your options based on a blood sample. But somehow through all those, they were able to identify immediate family members to the potential killer. So they contact these people and they say, hey, we're trying to solve a cold case. Is there any chance you would come in and give us a sample? And like we can try to match, see how close we are to what these results are. Like basically fact check our work. So the family members volunteer to come in, give a blood sample and go from there. And they are a match. So they are able to dwindle it down from a possible killer to an identified Paul Jean Chartland. And he was the verified non-victim blood at the crime scene. So they were able to verify all these samples through like those, like you said, like the 23andMe. That's kind of creepy, no? Well, they kind of work backwards and try to get like as close of a match. And then based on the certain number of matches, then you can see who's closest and... Mm, that's just that's just wild i want to do 23 and me and then i realized like what if i get blamed for a crime maybe i shouldn't <laughs> don't get me 23 and me for for a birthday present i'll just throw it in the trash surprise just no kidding. i'm staying off of that but that's what okay so we have a suspect now yes okay so they match it and it's good so now they're on the search for paul john chartland gene chartland and when they look him up and they're like, all right, we got our guy like they're ready, you know, handcuffs in hand, ready to go. They learned that he had been arrested in Los Angeles in 1994. And DNA was collected for this crime. And I wasn't able to find what the crime was, which was a little irritating. Um, but they did collect DNA for it. So I'm going to assume it had to do something with like sexual assault because that's usually. Yeah, it, has some, it must have been like some kind of rape or assault like charge, like you said. Well, okay. no, I think they take thumbprints for everything, though. Anyways, they collect it and they're like, OK, cool. Like, why didn't it come up when it was ran through CODIS or when they were doing any of the other searches? Turns out that because it was in 94, it was when CODIS was being implemented or like getting up and running. Yes. So they had the sample but it just hadn't fully uploaded into the system for them to find it. Okay. Well, I mean, you have to consider it's going to take years and years and years for them to put well, yeah, but all uh, these samples. And in. also to like all this like trial and error over the years. So they're, they're, they're like, they were so close. They would have found him in 94. If it had gone into the system right away, Yeah, like 15 years instead after of waiting the, the till 
2019 is when they found it. So October of 18 is when the FBI got involved. And a full year later in 2019 is when they were able to close this cold case. Okay. And be on the hunt for their guy. So in 94, he got let go. And I don't know what the reasoning was. Again, like none of the files were there for that. But he actually died in 1995 in Arizona. He was living out there with his mother. Wow. And so how did he die? They're, they won't disclose how he died or how old he was when he died. Really? Yeah. So we, we. I don't know if it's because of the time period and the filing or if it was like a security reason. Like, again, there's not much out there. Um, so it was pretty hard to track that down. Dang. And you know what? And these are the type of cases that are, they're terrible because it's like, okay, you're able to actually connect right the dots well hence the bittersweet he was able to avoid justice for 16 years before he died yes and who knows if he hurt anyone else along the way and as far as motive they said that it just kind of looked like a burglary gone wrong because he had no connection to her at least that police were able to find throughout their investigation well you, you said you mentioned that the the initial uh, crime scene, it looked like there was like a struggle. Was there any reports of anything missing? No, I think that because they were so focused on the blood work in it that they didn't really report much of like anything on missing. They just said that from their point of view, it looked like the motive was a burglary gone wrong. Mm. Like if you're trying to break into the house, didn't expect someone to be home. And then it broke out into. And then it escalated to this. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's just terrible. You know, I mean, it's like you said, bittersweet. It's it's it holds true to bittersweet that you have a suspect, but that suspect is no longer. And here. that you had to wait forty years to get any kind of closure, at least for the Becker family. That to me is really heartbreaking. That like again, trial after trial, like oh, we might have found something. Oh, dead end. Oh, we might have had a solution. Oh, another dead end. Like it's just after so many times, you're kind of like, don't tell me until you figure it out because there's only so much your heart can take on those. Yeah, and it reminds me of uh, our case that we just uh, did not too long ago. Uh, Jody? So this was the first case that was solved with the genetic genealogy. Jody Saren was the third case. So I thought that was pretty cool that there was a little bit of a connection. Okay. Um, But yeah, this is when... And I think we're going to start to find a lot more now that cold cases are getting reopened and reevaluated. And like I said, it takes a long time and a lot of trial and error to figure this out. So I think that throughout time, we might start to see more of these cold cases get solved with the technology we have available now. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And it's, it's, it is kind of scary, too, because, you know, you could only find a matching suspect if that person committed a crime earlier, too. Like, it, it, there's so many man hours be- that go behind the scenes that we really don't know the, the process of it. All we just see is just what is shown on the news reports like, oh yeah, this person was a victim of a crime. And then 20 years down the road is like, Hey, that person of that crime, here's the suspect. Finally got justice, but I don't even know if you'd call that justice if they're already gone. But what scares me though, is she started her morning, like any other morning, like any other person, like you don't think anything. And I realize that you can die at any time and you can't be ready for it. But it just sounded like such a normal routine. 
Well, it was, it was just that, you know, that, that typical housewife life. You know, she was going to go drop off her kids at school and then pamper herself for a great, you know, self-care spa day or whatever it was, right? And then be home for when her kids were dismissed from school. I think it makes me be a little more grateful every day that we do wake up and we are healthy and safe and able to keep going. Cause yeah. Cause you, you look at the little things and you know, you, you do, you do take them for granted. You know, you waking up is half the battle, you know, then you strap on your boots or your shoes or whatever you get dressed and then you head out the door. And then from there, it's just like, okay, get so overwhelmed with day-to-day life or like work drama or family drama or, you know, just kids schedules. And it's so easy to get lost in like the frustrations of things and to realize like how lucky you are that you can still keep going, that you are safe and happy and healthy. And I don't know, it just kind of hit home with me where it's like, Oh, it was a normal morning. And then all of a sudden, you know, somebody's breaking into your house and you're fighting for your life. Like, I don't know what I would do in that situation. And I, choose to not have to think about it well yeah because I, I you never wake up thinking to yourself oh yeah you know what today's a good day to get robbed or today's a good day to to, to be murdered well, no. no you oh, <laughs> you don't and i but i i get your point i do get your point that you know a lot of these things are everything like this is super unexpected and you know you do come to a, to a time where it's like you know if i am put in that situation how am i going to react and I feel like even for myself, being a man, like, I don't know how I'm going to react if someone walks into the kitchen with a gun or a knife or like a like a uh, a bat or something. Like, I don't know how to really react. Like, I don't think you would know until the moment. I mean, I feel like your fight or flight would kick in, hopefully. But. It's very it's, it's hard to tell. It is. It's very it's very difficult to to even gauge and think about it, but. I am glad that her story does have some closure and hopefully that helps her boys and her husband move on and kind of have a little bit of assurance that he's no longer hurting others and that they're not having to wonder who or why or what. Oh yeah. Or that this person that killed their mom is like still living out in the streets, enjoying their freedom. She was 37. She was so young. She had her young boys. Like they got robbed of all these memories. It's just heartbreaking. It really is. And you you couldn't find an update on, you know, what's the whereabouts of those the, the two boys? I don't like to do that because I feel like I want to respect their privacy. If they have to go their whole life having to, like, be titled as, like, the boys that, you know, whose mom mm-hmm. got killed. Like, I just feel like it's just insensitive. Well, that's, that's, you're absolutely right. I feel like I want to respect their privacy up to that point. Like, I still see them as seven and nine year old children and I want to respect their boundaries on that. Yeah, because even when we do our own investigation and our other cases, like we are able to find names of siblings of, you know, relatives and stuff like that. But we just choose not to even say it. Yeah. I feel like it's a privacy courtesy where if those details don't need to be mentioned, then why go there? That's good. I like it. I fair enough. Cause I, I do respect people's privacy and you know, you don't ever want to have, these kind of memories be brought back back up again you know like i i look at our previous cases and you know for instance the maya case you know that preliminary hearing was on tv and we saw it but also you have to consider that the whole nation is capable of seeing it too so it's like their name is out there and then on some of these trials or preliminary hearings you're able to see you know uh, 
footage of like people's phone numbers and stuff like that out there. And you're like, oh my gosh, if my if my phone number was out there and I had some random people calling. I don't think that was supposed to happen. I'm pretty sure that was an oversight. But it's like it's it happened. I we saw that. Oh you yeah, and I, you and I saw that. We but just, it shouldn't have. Like it should have been redacted. That's the whole point of like still protecting the privacy. Which is why I chose not to share because I knew it was a mistake. It wasn't done on purpose to like share somebody's phone number with the world. Mm-hmm. So, but you can see how 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 easy and how simple something like that can be overseen. But then you also think about how strange the world is and how people can take that information and just stock or either you know do that kind of stuff. So, but thank you, thank you for sharing this bittersweet story. It's definitely. Not the easiest thing to to ever discuss that, hey, cold case turn, you know, solved, but there is no actual complete closure because this person passed away. And there's so many more questions left unanswered. Like, why did this happen? Why did you, you know, like, there's just so much more left unseen. Like, like, I wonder if he was like watching her or if it was like a random act where he just picked a house or if he like saw them leaving and assumed they wouldn't be home. Was he looking for something in particular or was it just like the idea of La Jolla people have money so they must have had something to rob? Like, you know, you just wonder why, like why pick that target? Yeah, totally. Totally agree. Well, let us know what you guys think. Um, Thank you, Angie. I know we had a little bit of a quote unquote rain delay. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Rainy day Uh, delay. Rainy day. We've been a little bit behind on this, uh, especially... uh, here in North County, the 78 freeway is affecting us a little bit. But what well, also kind of worked out because it was right on the 44th anniversary where if I had done it on our typical Monday, it would have been day before. So silver lining. <laughs> it wasn't on purpose, but it kind of lined up. Oh, I did. You did great. I love it. Here's paying our respects to Barbara Becker. And now we introduce our SBS of the week. Small business spotlight. Let's introduce to you guys Lime in the Coconut, located at 248 3rd Avenue, Chula Vista, California, 91910. As you guys might remember, I am from Chula Vista originally, and if you're familiar with 3rd Avenue or downtown Chula Vista, there used to be a restaurant called Mancha Italiano. It was like, I guess, a, a landmark in downtown Chula Vista on 3rd Avenue was a very tall uh, red building with obviously Italian food. They closed down and I was so sad because I felt like it was like a piece of Chula Vista history, but they reopened or a new owner opened and it is now the lime and the coconut. And the reason I wanted to go here was because there is a hidden speakeasy inside of the restaurant. And that was my mission, but I got sidetracked by their delicious food and drinks and I did not find the speakeasy. Um, but I went for a girls' night and everything was so delicious. It's uh, Hawaiian, but the drinks are very Instagram and beautiful and just as delicious. And they do not skimp on them. Like they are not watered down. <laughs> um, learned that the hard way. <laughs> they also have a really nice bowl that serves appropriately for people. So must try. We got the scorpion and it was delicious. We tried their coconut shrimp. We tried their pokey nachos. And I will be posting all this on our Instagram, but it was as delicious as it sounds. So go check them out. Make sure you tag us if you go. Let us know what you think. It is super fun. It literally transports you to like very Hawaiian, 
you know, vacation vibes. Tropical it just, paradise. It was feel. actually raining outside and we were like totally in like Hawaiian vibes. We were like, oh, like just need a pina colada, but the string's great. I know you sent me a video and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm jealous. And cause I was, I was here at the house working on our extra stuff for the podcast. And you know, there was someone performing like music too. And I'm like, yeah, oh, there was live music. Like it's just very bright and airy and light environment. It's super delicious. Everybody's very friendly. I was the neon straws. Like everything's just perfect. I, I was, just loved I was it. pretty jelly. Honestly, I got to say I was pretty jelly. If so. you're looking for something new to check out, they opened last October, I believe. So they're still fairly new, but you couldn't even tell. Like they're just, it's a very fun environment. It's definitely somewhere that you're like, oh, let me try that new spot out. So if you go tag us, I want to know what you thought. And if you tried the food, let me know what you think. Awesome. Yeah, go support. So go check out Lime and the Coconut right there in Chula Vista, downtown 3rd Avenue. And let us know what you guys think. And if you're there, don't forget to go visit mm Cakes, which is like a couple doors down. For like a little dessert because all of Third Avenue is like up and coming right now. And there are great small business vendors all along that street. So if you want to make a day of it and go bar hop, go have lunch, go have dessert. Like, Let, let us not forget that right there on Third Avenue, they have the Manny Machado like painted mural. Oh, yeah. The ground floor mural is yeah. literally right there. So Baseball's back more. So you got to get ready for me to be gone for the next six months. That actually sounds like a really fun like day date, like to go like grab a drink at one and then grab food at another and then dessert at another and like bar hop all these small businesses. Yeah, I I, I, I totally that. be down. I totally be down. Even if you guys want to meet up with us face to face, like, hey, let's do it. Let us know. We can plan a day. We can set something up. It'd be really fun. Yeah. But yeah, I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode as well as the small business. And make sure to stay tuned every Monday for your next dose of Where in the World is Crime in San Diego? Till then, catch us on the next case. And in case we don't see you, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Tell me where in the world is Crime in San Diego. Hey,